everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, we got our fill of Group B action tonight. Yeah, we did. We got a lot of it. Some good goals, too. We had some good goals, not as many even combined as the eight from El Trafico <laughs> yesterday, but that's an unrealistic standard. Right. We had San Jose facing off with the Chicago Fire with the Quakes winning 2 nothing in the first game of the day, and then the late game was the Seattle Sounders against the Vancouver Whitecaps with the Sounders winning 3 to nothing. Jordan, let's start with the first game, as we always do. Okay. San Jose's 2-0 win over the Chicago Fire. Okay, the one thing I, that I have to say right away is when people are like, okay, what does the man-marking system look like? Like, I don't see cues for it. Well, there this happened twice in, like, the first 20 minutes of the game. San Jose would be in transition, and they would lose the ball, and so they'd mark up their man. And then there would be one holding mid for... Chicago open due to them playing in like a 5-3-2 uh, system or a, a 3-5-2, whatever you want to call it. And J- Judson would come sprinting, I'm not kidding, like 40 yards past his other midfielders to go man-mark that holding midfielder for Chicago. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> it seems like it's always those holding midfielders, Jackson Ewell and, and Judson, who's responsible who are responsible for stepping high and pressuring the the weak man or the open man in the opposing back line or in midfield. Those guys do so much running for Mateus Almeida. Oh my gosh. And it's like, in those moments, I just want to be like, you guys can man mark, but just tell that person in front of you to step to the next man and then you take their man. It just seems to me like that makes more sense. But I mean, go back to the 15th and the 23rd minute. You'll see the run from Judson and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that is a little <laughs> odd. <laughs> so let's start with let's start with the goals in this game. Jordan, okay. I think you did an excellent job of giving the the brief cliff notes of both setups. Man marking for the San Jose Earthquakes in that 4-2-3-1. The Chicago Fire in a 5-3-2 mostly because they sat back and defended for most of this game. So that's yeah. that's the basic setups. One thing I want to mention is uh, before we get into the goal, San Jose, uh, Shea Salinas was on extra time and he was talking about how Almeida gives them the confidence to continue to play out of the back time and time again. If you remember last game for the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, Vega gave up a sloppy ball out of the back. It turned into a goal, but then... But then right again, they're playing out of the back. And this is what happens midway through that first half, maybe a little bit closer to halftime. Um, Vega gets the ball at his feet and Chicago starts to high press Vega, right? They know what just happened. So they press him. He chips CJ Sapong to play the ball to Judson, who's on Judson, who's on the, the wing. And then Judson plays a bending ball with outside of his foot around a defender on the, the touchline into the forward. And then they ping it inside to off of a head pass to Erickson, who then switches the point of attack. And San Jose gets a chance at the other end through four passes. It was the perfect reason why in, in execution of their coach giving them confidence to continue playing out of the back because they can do it and they're going to make mistakes. But I just love that combo of like hearing Salinas talk about that and then watching it happen in real life. That's awesome. I love that. Coaches giving confidence is one of the biggest things that they can do. Yes, they have tactical input, but so many of those those tactical points fall into the players to execute those things. Mm-hmm. So giving them the confidence to be able to go and 
and execute properly is huge for any manager. Yeah. And I think Almeida does that so, so well. Right. I'll clip, I'll clip it and I'll, I'll put it up because it was a cool play. Fantastic. All right, let's talk goals. The first half was quiet in this game. Not a lot of shots on target. Chicago mostly sat deep and San Jose mostly attacked forward, tried to break them down and failed. Second half, though, 56th minute, we get a goal from Christian Espinosa. It's Kashia playing it forward up to the number nine. That's Rios, who chests it down to Yule, who then plays it through to Espinosa, who scores to make it 1-0 for San Jose. I've got a bit of analysis on this goal, Jordan, but I want to flip it to you first. What did you see on this goal? I was still typing my notes and I had written 52nd minute and I'm typing notes, typing notes. And because I had noticed this, this play that it looked like San Jose was trying to do their center forward Rios would isolate one of those three center backs for Chicago. This time it was Calvo and he would check towards the ball and Erickson was the player with the ball in the middle of the the field. And when Rios checked to the ball, Erickson played it into his feet. Calvo was on his back. And Erickson um, just got a bounce. We called it a bounce pass when I was playing, where Rios just plays it right back to him. Um, It's kind of like the beginning of a setup of like up, back, and through, if you can think of that. Um, But not a third man runner. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So we call it a bounce pass. So Rios bounces it back to uh, Erickson in this instant. And then that space that Calvo just left, this time it was Espinoza and he diagonally runs from outside to in into that space and the pass doesn't come off right. But you could see that if you could isolate a center back and pull them out of the position, there was so much space, especially with Espinosa's speed, to play the ball in behind and, and get an opportunity at goal. So um, I had wrote that in the 52nd minute and they scored in the 56. And I was like, Joe, I just was writing this down. I was texting Joe and feeling like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. It's almost as if you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's actually what I wrote you. <laughs> it's it's a great bit of of movement to manipulate defenders. I feel like we keep harping on that idea and that theme throughout some of these daily episodes, but it's because it's so important, right? Yeah. In in this instance, in the buildup to the to the goal in the 56th minute, it's Pineda, who's the center center back for the fire, who gets mm-hmm. pulled out, drops deeper into midfield with Rios to right. mark him, and then that space is open for Espinosa to run into. Yeah. He makes that outside in run from the right wing, right in that gap between the center backs. That play, that inside-out run from Espinosa looked like a carbon copy of, of the movement that we saw SKC pull off against Colorado that eventually led to a red card from the Rapids mm-hmm. and sort of yeah. ended that game in chaos and allowed SKC to win that match. Right. The similarities are there, and it's a beautiful attacking movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was a good goal. I liked that goal from the Quakes. Goal number two of this game, not not so beautiful. It's Chris Wondolowski. He gets his goal as he does after wait, being wait, wait. subbed that in. Wait, wait, That was a beautiful goal. What are you talking about? Okay. It was a, a little, good header. It was a great header, but Jordan, he had eight feet of space. That's an exaggeration. He had a lot of space on each yeah. side of him. Poor defending. And I think that's what I'm fixated on, I guess. Okay. Can I just say, well, you go with what you're going to say, and then I'll I'll see if I can add something in, because there's something in there that I just loved. Okay. All right. So I want to focus on that Chicago defending. Okay. What is happening there from Chicago? No idea. San Jose had the ball in the final third. Fierro, who was another sub. Almeida's having great luck with his subs. He has something going <laughs> here with those players. Fierro plays the ball in from the right wing into Wanda, who heads it home to double the lead. 2-0 at this point in the game, but it's too easy. Mm-hmm. It's the fire, especially defender Boris Sekulic, who just doesn't mark Wondolowski. Jordan, how do you not mark Chris Wondolowski? I, I actually have no idea. 
I don't know how you would just leave him run free. Uh, it's a good little jar- darting run towards the near post, but still, you have to be closer than that to him. If you get close to one guy on the field, maybe in this entire tournament, in the box, it's Chris Wondolowski. And so that, that baffles me. The defending on that play and, and largely across Major League Soccer still as a league has a lot of room to improve. There's far too much ball watching, which again, we've talked about before. But I want to use this goal as sort of a greater talking point for the Chicago Fire. Okay. I'm honestly not sure that we've seen much of anything from them in this tournament so far. Bits and pieces, right? There's been players. I think Pineda was great against the Sounders. I think Frankowski was really good in this game, owning, especially in that first half, the right the right side of the field, both out mm-hmm. wide, tucking inside and allowing a center back to overlap or one of the forwards to move and make that inside out run into space on the right side. But outside of maybe a few performances that were quality and in a general idea of what shape Rafael Vicky wants to use, I don't I don't know that we've learned a lot about Chicago. Yeah, and I think I think this is going to be one of the hardest teams to learn a lot about because when you think about how much turnover they've had, not only a new head coach, but I think it's like 17 new players to the team. Like that's a lot to try to get all on the same page. And there are glimpses, like you said, there's glimpses when you see them move. Madron gets on the ball and you're like, oh, something's about to happen. But you can tell there's just some little glitch, like some little disconnect that's not quite there yet. Like on that goal, maybe... It was caught between two markers, right? Wondolowski was. Or even on the wing, I think Fierro had time and space to cross the ball. I think that was created in part because of Tommy Thompson's overlapping run. I think mm-hmm. it almost freezed the outside back to or the wing back to say, I don't know which run to go with. And so he kind of got, for a split second, caught in between two minds. And, and that can be enough. But there, there's just, maybe that's what the defenders, especially in those key moments are just caught between two minds. I hope we see more of the Chicago Fire in this Me tournament. Too. That we learn more about them because I think they have the building blocks. I love that Medron mentioned there because he is a joy to watch on the ball. Yeah. Georgi Mihailovic coming in off the bench. The front two has potential with Sapong and with Beric. There mm-hmm. are talented guys on this team and I think Rafael Vicky has has some coaching chops. I think he knows what he's doing in a lot of ways. And so I want to see more from the Fire and I, I've been waiting to see more and I just don't think we've seen it yet, which is yeah. fine because yeah. we've got more chances. Well, yeah, at least one more for the fire. <laughs> okay, that's San Jose's 2-0 win over the Chicago Fire. Jordan, next up, the Seattle Sounders' 3 nothing win over the Vancouver Whitecaps. What did you notice from Seattle in this game? The one thing I want to talk about with Seattle is, well, first, they just came out uh, feisty, like a little bit more hungry, right? Right away, uh, nearly scored a goal. And that goal that got called back early on is just a key a key play to me when you're talking about why do near post runs matter? Well, if you watch Rui Diaz in that play and how his near post run opens and kind of discombobulates the Vancouver defense behind him because he's darting so hard to the near post, like that's why near post runs matter. Um, it just makes it so hard for the defenders behind him. But Seattle was out to, uh, not like prove a point because I just think they felt like they were more themselves. So Seattle does tend to have spans of time where they don't have the ball, right? And they're pretty solid in their defensive structure, a 4-4-2 block, and they, they'll they sit in a mid block when they're not high pressing you. And they're the 
spaces between their lines, both horizontally and vertically, are really tight, and it makes it hard to break them down. And they're content with just shifting and blocking the passing lanes to get forward. And they did this really well and frustrated Vancouver time and time again. But what I noticed is the cues that they would use in order to initiate their high press. So Vancouver in the first half would have, man, they had bouts of possession where they were Seattle was without the ball for minutes on end. And as soon as Vancouver got frustrated and would send the ball back to a center back, they'd step and you could see it visibly the whole block step forward. And then the center backs would play it all the way back to the goalkeeper. And then that's where they would go. The two front runners, typically uh, Ladero and Rui Diaz, say they want to pinch it to their right side of defense. Rui Diaz would make a bending run to his left and then back in, like almost a banana run, back in towards the goalkeeper. So he would go to the goalkeeper. The other player, Ladero, would go to the center back and they would squeeze him onto the right side. So then that leaves that holding mid open. And typically it's Roldan who's just bursting out of the midfield to go press there. So what happens when you see this? these players running at you like this, Joe? is typically the team's going to play it long, right? Because they don't want to lose it short. And Seattle just eats that up. They win the first and second balls, and then they have four or five players so close to goal because of that high-pressing structure that they can get at you super quickly. Seattle's defensive structure in that 4-4-2 block, the mid-block that can extend higher up the field, has been Mm -hmm. one of the best things about this team in this tournament so far. The way they defended against San Jose, who pushes so many numbers forward, and wants to possess and overload you out wide and cross the ball in. They defended really well against that in their matchup yeah. against the Earthquakes. Then coming yeah. into this game, they blank the Whitecaps. They have this solid defensive performance that allows them to push forward, apply pressure at times, while also conserving energy. It's a good look from Brian Schmetzer. Yeah, they're just very disciplined in it, and they trust each other. I think that's another thing. They trust each other that they have cover uh, and the person next to them and in front of them and besides them are going to do the work and put the work in. So that's my thing that I noticed about Seattle. If, if we're talking about Vancouver, I want to go to that those times where they had a lot of possession. And it wasn't – their possession was – Good. They were in the attacking half. They uh, were getting to the channels and swinging the ball through Embam in the middle. And they looked to have some type of rhythm there. But Joe, this is the difference between a Seattle Sounders team and a Vancouver Whitecaps team right now. They were just content with swinging the ball around. When there were, as you swing the ball, there's going to be channels that open up and you have to be you have to be able to take the risks to try to thread the ball through into the seams in between the lines, right? A lot of the times it was Jordi Reyna who would pop in between the lines just off the back line, just beyond the midfield line, right? That red zone, as Chris Armas likes to call it, behind the sixes. And he would want the ball and he'd be pointing at his feet and play me, play me, play me. And you have to play that ball in because once that ball comes in, the defenders have to shift. They have to step to the ball. And when they step to the ball, a different lane is going to open and you just have to be good at making decisions there. Vancouver in this game were not good at making decisions when um, when they got on the ball in those spots. They typically just played it back out, didn't turn to face and didn't make the defense have to make a decision. The difference between a team like Vancouver right now, yes, missing players, right? As this big caveat, 
They're missing key attacking players. We mentioned that the last Vancouver Whitecaps game that we covered here in this tournament. But with the difference between a, a team that can keep the ball and the team that can keep the ball and do something with it yeah, is huge, right? It's a difficult thing to be able to have possession and exploit those channels and move off the ball and have that understanding of where your teammates are going to be in possession to actually pose some sort of threat in possession. Mm-hmm. That's challenging, and we're not seeing it yet from Vancouver, which, again, somewhat understandable, but still something to strive for in the future for Marcos Santos's team with Vancouver. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the step one of his steps, right, is get a team that's comfortable with the ball and possessing in some kind of rhythm, right? And then you work on, okay, risk reward, finding the ball in those seams, then can you face and turn and get after a team with a like, be able to flip the switch of like just possession to cutthroat, we're going to go towards the goal. We haven't even talked about any of the goals yet from this game. We've been, know, in, the, right? we've been in the tactical <laughs> weeds. It's the three guys scoring for Seattle who you would expect to score for Seattle. It's Nico Ladero with a penalty in the 16th minute, Jordan Morris with a goal in the 34th minute, and Raul Ruiz Diaz with a goal in the 51st minute. We kind of know what we're getting from Seattle's attacking talent at this point. Yeah, they're they're so good. They're so fluid. Um, and when they get after you, it's hard to stop them, right? Yeah. The thing that I learned about the Vancouver Whitecaps, though, is I watched a couple of these goals go in, and it was it was actually after the goal in the 51st minute because it was a corner kick. Vancouver was zonal marking, mm-hmm. which you talked about last time, and it was a near post flick that went into the space where if you're zonal marking, Joe, you are responsible for the space in front of you and a little bit like beyond you, uh, higher up the field. But if you're on the six as that first zone behind you within the six to the goal line, that's the goalkeeper's space and they have to own that space. And that little flick at the near post goes right into that space. And, uh, Crepo doesn't come out to do anything with it. And Rui Diaz beats him there and ends up, uh, kind of bob- bobbling it around <laughs> yeah. and it goes in. And this is this is my thought about this because it was a very similar goal to what we saw again that the earthquake scored. The Vancouver Whitecaps have given up three goals on corner kicks and four goals down the right side of their defense. Not good, Jordan. Not good. That's that's not good. Uh, clearly, there are they are. Um, we talked about this already. They're missing players. It's been difficult for them, uh, even he- when they've been in Orlando, to keep players on the field. So I'm not going to say that the right side of the defense would maybe look like this if those players were here, right? But what I will say is you can control corner kicks. You can be better on corner kicks. And if you get scored against twice on a corner in your first game, then you have to have an intensity that the next time you are playing, you are going to be better on a corner on corner kicks. And to be scored against again in the same exact way is just a little like dagger. Jordan, that's the end of these two games in group B. We have a solid look at what the standings are going to be for teams advancing out of this group. Obviously, Chicago and Vancouver each still have one more game to play, and that'll be against each other. But it's the San Jose Earthquakes at the top, Seattle Sounders underneath them, and then those two Chicago and Vancouver in three and four spots. There's still a wild chance that Vancouver, you know, with goal differential and beating the fire, they could maybe make it in that third spot. But, um, you know, for them, I think 
a result in that last game would be important because it's still regular season points on the line as well. And even just seeing and learning more about these two teams, about Chicago and Vancouver when they do yeah. play each other and seeing maybe there are some mistakes for the Whitecaps that have been addressed and maybe the Fire are looking a little bit more dangerous in transition and more or more lethal if they don't want to be playing with the ball under Rafael Vicky. I just want to learn more about these teams because I yeah. still feel like there's a gap here compared to what we know about Seattle and the Earthquakes. That's a good point. And I think it'll be interesting because these teams will have to come out of their shells and have to um, score some goals. They have to score goals in order to keep themselves in this tournament. Minnesota United and RSL would like a word with you. But um, Jordan, <laughs> that is it for today. We will be back again tomorrow with another daily episode covering the MLS's back tournament.